the Higgledy Piggledy History Hodgepod with Alex Diamond and Dave Crowley. Hello and welcome to the Higgledy Piggledy History Hodgepod, the only podcast that redecorates your mind's uncertainty room in a nice shade of pink with matching cushions. I'm Dave Rattlehead Crowley, completely amateur history nerd, and I'm joined as ever by the chief spokesman for the People's Front of Judea, embroidery evangelist and historian, <laughs> Alex Darth Diamond. Wow, you went there. <laughs> well, I take it you're not referring to the People's Front of Judea. <laughs> no, I'm fine with that, yeah. And now all of a sudden I've become an embroidery evangelist. That is incredible, Dave. But hello, good to see you. You too, pal. For this episode, everyone, we're very fortunate to be joined by another guest speaker. A woman who revels in Renaissance popes, who lives and breathes all thing Borgia. And someone who has made more pilgrimages to Rome than most good Catholics. Professional book dabbler and historian, Dr. Catherine Fellows. Hello, Katie. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much to both of you for having me on there. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Fantastic. I should say, Katie, a little bio. Katie studied history as an undergraduate at Warwick before completing her MA in Medieval History at Durham. And she's just finished her doctoral thesis at uh, St. Peter's College in Oxford. Uh, And the thesis examines the role of the papal vice-chancellor by looking at the example of Rodrigo Borgia who held this office for 35 years. So with Katie's help, we are going to separate fact from fiction regarding one of history's great characters, Rodrigo Borgia, who became Pope Alexander VI. And we're asking the question, best Pope since St Peter or the Renaissance Berlusconi? So before we get right into that, uh, Katie, can you give us a, a a bit of an outline of what his background was like? Sure. So he's born on the 1st of January in 1431 um, in a small village called Hattiva, um in Spain. At the time, obviously, Spain, like Italy, is not one entity. It's divided into kingdoms, principalities. So the nearest one to go for is sort of the Kingdom of Valencia. So okay. we're looking east coast of Spain. Um, Hattiva is about 25 miles west of Valencia, if you can imagine a map of what modern day Spain looks like. Sure. I can, but again, as my knowledge of the Catholic Church comes from Father Ted, my knowledge of Spanish cities comes from the football teams that play there. <laughs> so, so I can see the map, but it's got these little stadiums dotted around it. But carry on. <laughs> um, so he's born into the Borgia. Uh, so we're using the Italian um, spelling, which is the GIA ending, not the Spanish ending, which is JA um, there. Uh, How is so, that pronounced? Okay, Borja, so the J almost becomes an H. My Spanish yeah. is terrible, so I'm terribly sorry if I've just butchered that for everyone. Um, Look who you're talking to, Katie. <laughs> Pronunciation's really not going to be an issue. Really. <laughs> so Borja is perhaps the closest I can get to it. Um, but the Italians couldn't manage that then, so they went they for Borgia. They go for Borgia, so, which, okay. which sounds nice. It's the one that you'll see everywhere on books, films, t- the TV series, and they've gone for the Italian it's Fair spelling. Enough. But it's all, yeah, it's also one of the biggest things I get asked is, oh, it's a Spanish, it's an Italian family. They're not Italian, they are Spanish. Um, okay. They can trace the heritage right back to sort of 13th century, um, in and around the same area, actually from a place called Borja. Um, and their origins are quite interesting. Okay. And, dis- and heavily disputed. Their enemies like to say they're lowborn. The Borgias always go, oh, we're knights and we helped, you know in the conquest around Valencia. So that's up for dispute 
all the time mm. as well. So how how do we end up with Rodrigo in Rome then? If if he's, if he's from a Spanish family, sure. Um, so it's um, technically it's his uncle. So this is another Borgia. Um, this is Alphonse Borgia. He is. Bishop of Valencia, he works in the Chancery for King Alfonso of Naples um, and Aragon. And at one point, uh, after sort of the Western schism is finished, Alfonso finds himself in Rome. And in 1444, he is elected um, to the College of Cardinals. He is given a titular. So that's a titular church is a church, in this case in Rome, which is assimilated with a, car- a specific cardinal. Okay. They then are perhaps known by that title rather than their own name. Um, and Alphonse gets this beautiful one. It's near the Colosseum called Santi Quattro Coronati, which he spends all his time in. He's usually cloistered away from everything, every vice, everything else that's going on in Rome. I'm sure. Um, yeah. And he's, he's quite unique in that respect, really. Yeah, he doesn't, say, he's doesn't definitely not right. like his nephew, where you know, gets accused <laughs> of everything. Um, so he bides his time there, and in 1455, when the Pope dies, he enters the conclave, not expecting to win. But because there's still this consistent infighting between the Orsini and the Colonna families, which are two of the big Roman families, right. no one can agree to a Pope. And the one that they want is a Greek, which they won't have at all. Oh dear. So suddenly, Alphonse, who's quite old, which is always an attractive quality for the Cardinals, old and firm, <laughs> um, finds himself elected. He is known as what, what we've come to understand as like a compromise candidate. So that is usually an elderly or infirm Cardinal who they don't think is going to last for very long. And yeah. what that does is it helps trigger a new election once the Cardinals have put all their little petty grievances aside. Of course. We'll elect this old boy. He'll be dead within he'll, six months. He'll die <laughs> soon. We can, we can do this again. Yeah, we'll kick the can down the road when he kicks it's, the can. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically the same as the, the Soviet Union post-Khrushchev. Uh, it's just a succession of old men waiting <laughs> to, for the next one to pop his just wait, wait for him to, to go. Um, so what was so, his papal name? What was his regnal papal name? So he chooses the name Calixtus, which others are choosing. Like, Borgia chooses Alexander, which you can see like Alexander the Great. It's got course, some connotations. Yeah, that's of the name I would choose, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Conquest, yeah. power, everything. Whereas yeah. Calixtus, the last one, um, so Calixtus II, had had to preside over sort of... Um, Things like the investiture controversy, and that's only, you know, it's not, it's kind of undermining papal authority. So we don't really know why he chose Calixtus. Um, okay. But anyway, he's installed. He brings his young nephews, Rodrigo and um, Per Luis Borgia, who is Borgia's brother, to Rome. Okay. Um, Borgia goes off to Bologna to study canon and civil law at the university. Um, somehow he gets a degree, a doctor, equivalent to a doctorate degree in canon and civil law in a year, which. Okay. Having just come out the other side of a PhD <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> no, I wonder if his famous uncle might have anything to do I with that. I think there was some money involved. Um, yeah. I've heard of you... Bob's your uncle, Bob's the Pope. I mean, Bob's the Pope <laughs> with a cottage that you know, run very deep in this yeah. case. Um, but also we've got these wonderful contemporary reports, actually, of the young Rodrigo is incredibly intelligent. Um, okay. One of his very pro historians called Peter DeRue actually says he graduates top of his class, which, um, if anyone reads DeRue's book, is a complete whitewash of Borgia. I mean, I, I'm like pro Borgia, but this takes it to a whole new 
Oh, really? Level. Um, so he finishes there. And then in 1456, he um, is elevated to the College of Cardinals by his uncle. Um, in his first series of, create, of, of cardinal creations, so that's when the Pope announces who his next cardinal is going to be. Um, okay, and yeah. he's, he's with a cousin, uh, Louis Juan de Mila, and the very young son of the King of Portugal, Don Jamie, who is 21. Borges is sort of 25, 26 at the time. Um, so he's a he cardinal. He's a cardinal. He's a cardinal deacon, which is the lowest um, sort of on the cardinal, I guess, ladder. There's three types of cardinals. Uh, cardinal okay, yeah. bishop is the top one. He's not going to be one of those. That's for sort of the more esteemed ones. You can be a cardinal priest, which both Miller and Don Jamie are. And then there's the cardinal deacon, deacons, which is what Borgia find himself as. And yeah. he has this wonderful titular church of San Nicolo in Carcere, which... They rumoured at some point has something to do with the jail of St. Peter, but that's up for mm. discussion as well. It's very nice. It's unfortunately not much of it survives anymore, but it's sort of on the Tiber in Rome, um, further down from sort of, I guess, where the Capitoline Museums are, if people know where, where they are. Um, so, yeah, that brings him to Rome. He's fully installed um, in the city. He lives with his uncle in the Vatican Palace for the first couple of years. Nice. And sort of starts learning the papal craft, as it, as it were. Then, as as he wasn't a, a churchman before he was made cardinal, is it at that point that he supposedly becomes celibate? Then, because I presume all these cardinals are supposed to. Be Theoretically, celibate. but we all know that's not going to fly. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that would They're be more expected. like guidelines than actual rules. Yeah, I think that quote from, you know, what's it from Pirates of the Caribbean, where it's a bit more like guidelines than rules. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just very conscious that with our listenership, you know, uh, there might not be that much fighting tonight, so we need to get some shagging in here somewhere. So I just, plenty I'm, of I'm that so, with the I'm so the scene for later, and that wasn't a pun. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, theoretically should be celibate, but um, doesn't doesn't take long for him. He's he's a young man in Rome, yes, in Italy. Understand. He's apparently contemporary, so he's quite attractive. So yeah, and he he gets on. He's very engaging. He's described as very warm and charismatic. So he's going to be quite popular. Um, that yeah, doesn't, that doesn't mean that he could just disregard the rules and start <laughs> giving it away like free samples <laughs> because he's handsome. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 sorry, but the guideline here is if you want to put it about a bit, then you really shouldn't be doing this. He doesn't your, when his uncle's job. pope. He keeps it on the down low when his part with uncle's pope. It's only when his uncle dies. I think that's fair. He, yeah, he's, he's, well, he's well behaved. He's well behaved for the first. I mean, but he's got you know, I guess so many examples around him of people that don't keep to sort of the rules, particularly things like pluralism, absenteeism, simony, and everything. So oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all not, within the spirit of the system, isn't it? It, it is, and you know, it's um, yeah. <laughs> Well, he, he, then, he then becomes uh, papal vice-chancellor, doesn't he, pretty soon after he, he gets He does, a year after. So 1457, um, he um, is able to sort of procure this wonderful palace, which you can still see in Rome. Um, and he starts to sort of fit it with sort of the very best of things. His now um, office sort of stipulates that you can get the very best sort of silks, books, um, and the best people to staff it. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah he's got this wonderful palace the salary i should say here it's not really known how much of a, a salary as we would know it that he gets one contemporary says it's about eight thousand ducats uh david chambers who's one of the best in my very humble opinion um one of the best renaissance historians uh we've got still it says it's about sort of eight thousand um which when you think about how much work the office entails it's not very much okay. hang on a minute they've just given him a palace he has he has to buy the palace oh he, oh, he bought that didn't he so he buys okay. the palace um okay. which nearly bankrupt him which is the, I'm not, you know, I'm not, yeah i'm not arguing over you know whether he got eight thousand or seven thousand ducats as a salary when he'd just been given a free palace. palace but if he yeah, had to buy it that's a big he difference. has to buy the palace which nearly bankrupts him um and but he, the fact that he got enough money at this point to, to buy a palace. a palace in central some of the Rome, card- is it? Yeah, some yeah. of the cardinals have to rent. We find these amazing documents of some of the cardinals having to rent accommodation because they just can't afford a central their own central base in Rome. So he is... So uh, that's not a that, problem for Rodrigo at this stage? Not at the moment. It, it was when he was first in Rome because he didn't have a salary. But no, he is very much set on a path from the word go with us. So he's he's essentially helping to run the catholic roman church a very young age and he's not even ordained as a priest um and he's a cardinal what 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 happens from there then because eventually he's got to become pope please tell me he does become a priest before he's elected pope he does so um (laughs) (laughs) i I should say this isn't uncommon that people so cardinals haven't been ordained priests um oh really okay sorry yeah so the best example we have sort of i guess from this time period is um pope leo the 10th so uh, giovanni di lorenzo di medici uh otherwise known as pope leo the 10th he um he's elected in when was it 1513 and he's not a he's not a priest borger is at least a priest by the time that he's elected the pope um suitable candidate yeah brilliant. suitable candidate it's fine um Leo, by contrast, in the week leading up to his his um, coronation, has to first be elected a priest or take priestly orders, and then has to be consecrated as a bishop. So he, he is he is way out at this point. Yeah, he rose through the ranks very quickly, didn't he? It's what happens that, when, you're a, when you're a Medici, though. Money talks. Yes, indeed. That would be better off with Bishop Len Brennan, to be honest. <laughs> he did a much better job. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be an authentic, you know, uh, churchman at least, not just a careerist who's like, well, I, I want a career in the church because I'm a lawyer and I can be a good administrator, but I'm not interested in, you know, being a priest or anything. Yeah, the religious like that. Not. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> this is a financial... This is a hedge fund, essentially, is what I'm running here. <laughs> So, I mean, Borg is not alone with that, but at least he, no. he does, in 1468, he does um, take priestly orders. So he is, you know, firmly entrenched now in this sort of wider church it, it, system. It, sorry, Gondo. No, go on, Mike. I was just going to say quickly before we move on, is, is he noted for any piety or spirituality or is it is it just normal? No. He's not a monk. We, we've, we've had a sex scandal, I should say, at this point. Oh, well, good. Right. Can we get that <laughs> in? Oh, we glossed over that. <laughs> yeah. We've okay. got quite a way without anyone being stabbed tonight. We need to get some bump and grind or something in here. So the scandal came in 1460. Um, so, I mean, he's only three years into the role of the vice chancellor. Um, Calixtus has died. Calixtus dies in 1458 and is succeeded by Pius II. And how this comes about is Borgia is in Siena for a baptism party. 
um, with one of the other cardinals, uh, Cardinal de Stoutville, he's a French cardinal. Um, he's older than Borgia, but he, I guess it's like a mentor figure for him. And the two men are invited to this party. Um, and apparently the story goes, it's held behind closed doors with Borgia and this other cardinal being the only men that are allowed in with all these women. And apparently, yeah, it's it's the report says it's you know after it's in the, at night, so you know read between the lines with that. And um, the the wonderful phrase goes something like, "And no allurements to love were spared." Um, nice. So reports of this reach the Pope. Um, the Pope is obviously furious um, with his young cardinal, so he sends him this incredible letter which um furious he wasn't bloody invited more like uh, yes indeed <laughs> where was my invite um and it's the one if you read any book on the borgias that's kind of unfortunately regurgitated over and over again as you know part of the black legend of the borgias and it yeah it's a telling it's a glorified telling off but you know he reminds borgia that he's a cardinal He's also Bishop of Valencia at the time, which is one of the wealthiest sees you could get um, oh sort of in Spain. And it's, you know, it's a telling off. You've got to respect the office. Um, unfortunately, the letter that Borgia sent back to Pius we, hasn't survived. So you can't right. see, uh, you know, it's absolutely not survived. Um, like quite a few of these Borgia documents, um, yes. they vanished at some point. Um, but then we get three days later, this wonderful third letter from Pius that... Um, is so different in tone it's basically an apology for sort of rebuking him so far like fast and not knowing the whole detail so you've got this sort of man coming down off the moral high ground very quickly oh wow um, and saying i'm sorry i overacted not everything's <laughs> fine but you know on your way and let's not speak anything more about this so basically, um, at least two, two or three women at that party said, I can tell you about an interesting birthmark on the Pope's buttocks. <laughs> but here's the money, so don't talk yeah. about it. So, yeah. so um, uh, the missing letters, uh, <laughs> do you want me to describe your ass to the people in yes. Rome? I met a lovely lady. She knew you very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, yeah, this is the first sort of scandal that we have um, okay. with Borgia. But yeah, he's, he survives it. He's fine. He... Um, he loves the company of women. I mean, that's that's an easy thing to say about him. He's okay. the year before been seen going around um, in Mantua where there's a big congress to try and get a new crusade going against the Ottoman Turks. Um, Borgia spotted out on the lake with the um, wife of the sort of Marquess of Mantua um, in her boat. And they're just taking little scenic trips. He says, lovely. you know, I really, I really want some outdoor space. I don't, you know. That lovely. Yeah, so he, he loves the company of women. He spends a lot of time with women and very, like, influential women, which then means, like, two years later, the Marquez's son becomes a cardinal. So you can see this wonderful pattern. Everything's thought out oh, yeah. almost two steps ahead um, yeah. because that family's related to the German princes. Obviously, it's good for Borgia to have some big diplomatic support because despite the fact coming from Spain, the Spanish monarchs, not massive fans of him so you've oh, got to really? have yeah some diplomatic support just in case you're not know, on the off chance they're going to conclave um and he really considers trying to run for um the papacy which you know at a young age he's really not going to be elected but it's it's sure. good to have this in reserve what the, can i ask them what what um what did he do then that upset the spanish monarchy because uh, i would have thought that the idea of having a, a spaniard 
uh, make their way to to the top seat in Rome would have appealed to them. So it's more, I, I probably should have phrased it better, it's more later on that the Spaniards sort of try and put distance between um, themselves and Borgia because of the immoral comments that start sort of coming their way about right. um, his right, depraved okay. lifestyle. He is very sympathetic to the sort of Moriscos um, and the Jewish populations on the Spanish peninsula at a time where they're sort of clamping down on religious freedom. He's a very, he's seen as a quite a tolerant figure. Yeah, and so, they don't like that much in the Spanish They drama. don't like that but at the time. So yeah, they no. try and put distance between um, themselves and him. There's also some qualms over some other diplomatic things that Borgia doesn't go sort of fully for Spain. He's very sort of um, pragmatic in his approach. So if that means not fully engaging with sort of Spanish interests, then... But if I may, Katie, what, what it seems to me what you're saying is that in in his sort of you know spending time with women, he it, it wasn't so much that he was a lech, but more that he was an effective political operator. He's a very making alliances, you know, with powerful families via powerful women. It's always the phrase if someone says, "Can you describe him?" I've always described him as a politically pragmatic priest. Nice. That yeah, he's always got an. Well, he's not a priest with... until sixty eight, of course. But yeah, of otherwise. course, we'll remind everyone of that. He's not a priest at the moment. Yeah. I, think um... we now, I think we now have a title for this episode. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so eventually, in fourteen ninety two, he does actually become pope. He does. Um, so he in fourteen seventy one has become a cardinal bishop, which elevates him to the top of the College of Cardinals. Nice. In 1483, he's taken even further when he becomes dean of the college. So that is technically the most senior, um, usually the one that's been there the longest, um, who acts as sort of a you know, a guide for the younger cardinals to follow. He'll be the first in processions. He's also the first to vote in any papal conclave. And Ooh. surprisingly, not many deans have gone on to become pope. Um, but it does generally sort of establish them as the most sort of senior one, the one that knows the most sort of you know, religious dogma, diplomacy, whatever. Um, and is, is, it the, is it the current Pope that is giving him these positions, like who makes him a cardinal bishop and who, who ensures that he's the dean? So it's always Sixtus IV who was Pope in 1471 makes him a cardinal bishop. Okay. Um, but the, the office of the dean goes down from in terms of sort of longevity of service. So when Cardinal de Stoutville, the one who accompanied him to Siena okay, um, okay. for the party, dies in 1483, Borgia after that is the longest serving. So it's like father of the house kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of almost, I guess, like a hereditary. It just passes down a chain of... To whoever's been here the years. longest, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then 1492, August 1492, rolls around. Um, Pope Innocent VIII has been ill for pretty much the whole of his pontificate. Um, he'd been elected in 1484 and he'd been sick sort of a couple of weeks after being elected. So the College of Cardinals is always expecting, I think at some point, they're going to have to elect a successor. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 14, sort of the summer of 1492, he dies. The Cardinals, tra- as many as they can, travel back to Rome for the sort of forthcoming conclave. Um, you'd think Borgia, who is the Dean of the College, he's still Vice-Chancellor and a, and a Cardinal Bishop. So the three top sort of levels would be a surefire hit for the papacy, but actually is not. 
considered um, electable or the phrase we like to use is papabile, so considered to be pope. <laughs> um, nice. I like that. Don't know what he has to do at this point. Um, a lot of it, unfortunately, has to do with his Spanish heritage. There's a lot of distrust about him. Yeah, not the one sex the... stuff. No, that's fine. But but he's a his... Spaniard. Gosh, he can't be pope. No, <laughs> it's the same way they didn't want the Greeks to be pope. That they, you know, yeah. want, they they want it desperately to be a Roman. But you know, yeah. no. Um, certainly not an Italian. Yeah, at the very no. least, he has to be Italian, if not yeah. Roman. Yeah, if not, <laughs> best thing Roman. Um. So there's 25 cardinal electors, so that's 25 voters. Um, they're split between two parties, which loosely come under the headings of the Milanese and the Neapolitan. So what Borgia has does is he thinks about what benefices, castles, money, anything I, I've got in my possession, what can I give to specific cardinals in here to break the deadlock? Yes, yes, it's um, not a bribe. It's not a bribe. You make that yeah. sound. You make that sound so like you're trying to help out. Oh, what can I give to break the deadlock? Not what. What am I going to hand over to win? Which is essentially what we're talking about. Oh, okay then, Katie. So we should probably talk about uh, Rodrigo as Pope Alexander, which is what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, having spent a lot of time uh, talking about his really interesting early life, um, so. Can you give us a very brief summary of his time as Pope? Sure. So I'd say it's defined by um, two major events, which is obviously the French invasion of Italy in 1494, um, perhaps through mismanagement of diplomacy, underestimating just how um, realistic the threat of invasion was. Um, the French army is pretty much allowed to cover the entire of Italy without being stopped. Um, okay. So they go through Florence with no one stopping them and they reach the walls of um, Rome. The Pope's forced to take refuge in Castel Sant'Angelo, so the big major fortress. Yep. Um, so this really is the papacy under threat. It's not just the Borgias under threat, it's the papacy, it's the church under threat. Um, can, I, can I just ask, Katie, was sure. the, 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 re the reason for this, this French invasion, is this a land grab or is this something else? It's a territorial claim to Naples, which drives it. Um, okay. Right. So Naples is usually sort of the battleground for a number of parties sort of competing over um, who basically is going to succeed the monarch. Do they have a lawful claim? It's your typical sort of, yeah, like you said, land grab. That um, yeah. when, when the ruler dies at the moment, no one has, um, although it's not far off, um, <laughs> who's next in line. So, yeah, yeah. the French um, move through Italy pretty much unscathed. They come to Rome. Borgia's forced behind the big sort of walls of Castel Sant'Angelo. And some of his cardinals have turned against him. So you've got a split in the church. You've got a split in the College of Cardinals. Um, yeah. It's headed by the infamous Cardinal Della Rovere, um, <laughs> who's shown his hand all in one go about who he's willing to support. He's a ne'er-do-well, um, isn't he? He's very much, he is completely opposite to Borgia. He has no understanding of diplomacy. Um, he's very hot-headed. He's very aggressive. Borgia, by contrast, a bit more shrewd. Um, mm. It's known to bouts of sort of, bad temper but not on a scale like this um so that's the first one i'd say has come to define the papacy is his complete mishandling of that you've got this weird diplomatic display between the french king and borgia where they both pretend not to see each other and acknowledge each other um it's, i'm not it's, talking to you you're dead to me yeah yeah and you know, <laughs> this weird thing that plays itself out in the middle of the vatican which everyone sort of stood there going one of you's got to make a move um <laughs> 
and this continues on sort of for the next sort of um french invasions french presence in italy on the or sorry the italian peninsula um mm-hmm. sort of the next definitely couple of years um and there's always the threat of a french invasion or the french king calling a general council of the church to depose the pope which has happened previously um for oh, yeah. sort of the 15th century the, the sort of validity of you know the pope the state of the church has been called into question and it's a it's a card the french king has to threaten the pope with basically yeah. if you don't behave if you don't somehow have french interest in the back of your mind it's a card i'm willing to play okay so there's that one um i say the other better you know other known event is the execution of um Girolamo Savonarola in Florence um yes he's Dominican preacher um who very much is a firm believer that things like the French invasion bad bad bouts of plague famine are signs of God's displeasure with Italy um and God's displeasure with the papacy yeah and the only way to go about this is for everyone to repent um when the Medici go out of power in Florence he sort of has this like popular government's the wrong word but him and his followers sort of seize the reins of power um there's an event called the bonfire of the vanities where leading citizens willingly put their own sort of personal items so paintings um wigs jewelry um basically any form of like beautification objects they're all burnt symbolically um, because they believe this sort of pure life will mean that yeah. um, things return to normal. Course, Obviously, yeah. it, un- it undermines the Pope, the Church, for the left, right, and centre. So there's this wonderful dialogue of letters between um, Alexander and Savonarola. At one stage, Alexander offers him a cardinal's hat, thinking that it will pacify him. Um, <laughs> obviously, it doesn't. And I'll make you it, a cardinal. Come on. Yeah, come on. You know, it's it's the best thing that you could hope for. Um, that doesn't work, and no. they get to sort of a stalemate. He's banned from preaching, which is a huge part of how he spreads his rhetoric. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, the the only thing the Pope can do is excommunicate him. That also fails. He still preaches, and then he's arrested. Two of his followers and him are burnt very publicly in um, sort of the heart of Florence. So they're effectively martyred. They try and disperse all the ashes, but people sort of use them as relics. Um, but that wasn't they, personally ordered by the Pope, was it? Or was it that was, the authority? Oh, it, it was. was well, yeah. But Alexander because, was like, I've had enough now. He must go. He's a problem. He's got to go. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, again, become a large part. That's I like we, it's the complete opposite of what we said, I guess, in him not executing rebels in 1457. This time he he does... <laughs> By contrast, I think this is this is obviously way more serious. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think as well, he's he's scared for the spiritual position that he holds. So he's the only thing he thinks he can do is to remove this person completely. So I'd say those two are the big okay, defining yeah, the events. Big parts of his papacy, and and so I mean, good pope is is he the best pope since Saint Peter? <laughs> um, uh, is he a good pope, a bad pope? What can we say in assessment in your learned and expert opinion? I'd say he's a better vice chancellor than Pope. That's mm. the question I was asked in the um, Viber for my PhD was, did I think he was a better Pope than vice chancellor? Definitely think it's the other way around. His okay. mishandling of the French invasion 
the way in which he promotes his children, although it's not uncommon, does mean that most of some of the terrible things they get up to <laughs> has overshadowed his pontificate. So I think definitely bad advice chance than Pope, and sadly so, not not the best Pope since St Peter. So, so when you talk about promoting his children, right? So it, it's these are known to be his children that he's promoting despite the fact that he's supposed to have been celibate for 40 years. He's got children. He's got children. And he's promoting he's got them. plenty of children. Um, there are these from this... his early life, or are they... Yeah, They're when does he around. children? So anything from the late 1460s onwards... Um, so just when he becomes used... a priest? Yeah, just before. Just before. Right, yeah. Okay, late, um, late 1460s, yeah. So... We're back to Len Brennan and he's doing land in California. Um, he has, I guess, two definite groups of children and one by another woman that is perhaps his. Um, it's perhaps so, the, two, such... It's bad enough that he's got children, but the fact that you can describe them as two groups. definite groups. <laughs> yes. Jesus. So there's um, at least four or five by an unknown woman, um, one of which, Pedro Luis, named after Borgia's brother, becomes... Um, Duke of Gandia in Spain, so Ferdinand and Isabella give him a dukedom. Um, they also ensure that he marries their first cousin, Maria Enriquez de Luna. Nice. Um, but he dies, um, I think it's following one of the battles he's fought for the Spanish monarchs. Um, but there's the next set of water children, the most infamous and the definitely. Yeah, Cesare. Um, right. Cesare, uh, Juan, Lucrezia, and Goffredo. They're the ones that everyone knows. They're the ones that TV series, everything is picked up on yeah, left, yeah, right, yeah. centre. Um, Cesare's made a cardinal in 1493. It's a family business at this point. It's a fa it? He's got to keep it in the family. Yeah. Um, he also resigns from the cardinalate, which I guess is another event that defines oh, wow. his papacy. He's the only person to do so. Um, yeah, that happened in 1497. Um, okay. Following the death of, death of his brother Juan, Juan's murdered one night after a um, a dinner party. It's still a cold case; no one actually knows who killed him. I mean, there's whole different theories about whether it's Cesare, whether it's Goffredo because Juan slept with his wife. Um, that's yeah, my on that. There's a recurring <laughs> theme that the Borgia men will sleep with each other's wives willingly across you know the whole period. Um, nice. And then several of the Roman families are involved, um, and Lucrezia's first husband, Giovanni um, Sforza, who at that point has been, his marriage to Lucrezia has been annulled, whether it's, you know, revenge for that, all the petty slights about him being impotent, that oh, um, he kills one. Um, <laughs> um, so depending which narrative you read, yes, he acknowledges them. Sometimes he refers to them as our nieces and nephews. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a polite way yeah. of sort of going around the issue um, there is also a story which I don't give much time for for Cesare being perhaps the son of Cardinal Della Rovere um, because the story goes that Giuliana Della Rovere Borgia's big nemesis um, has an affair with Vanotta Catane who is Borgia's I guess the one mistress if you want to give her that title that we yeah. know the most about, um, that Cesare might be his son. It throws a whole other dynamic in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's quite open. I mean, he has Lucrezia living in a palace next to the Vatican. Um, he's very fond of her. Yes, there's rumours that they, um, uh, rumours of incest with the two of them, which 
yeah, I, I don't buy for one second, but he is very sure. sort of protective over his children. But unfortunately, they have a lot to do with the negative way in which the border legacy survives. Yeah, of course. And, and then after 11 years uh, as Pope, I mean, he, uh, he dies. But I mean, he was quite, you know, 72, something like that, was yeah. he? I mean, that was quite an age for uh, for this period of history that he made it to. It is. It's a longer sort of, I guess, top end of, if you look at the 15th century papacy, the length of pontificates, he does pretty well um, for sort of how long he's on the papal throne. Obviously, compare that to how long his vice chancellor. It doesn't look as much, yeah. but you know, at the time, he's had to go through all the you know, upheavals. He's been ill. He does pretty well um, until August 1503 rolls around. He goes to a banquet at the house of Cardinal Castellesi uh, with Cesare. Again, we have conflicting stories about how he dies. Some people believe that he's accidentally poisoned by Cesare, so his sons accidentally poisoned him because they want Castellesi's lands and money and the cup's given to the wrong person because that cardinal survives. They tried to poison yeah. their host, basically. And they accidentally poison each other. So yeah. Cesare is also <laughs> near death's door. Blimey. Um, right. now, now we're into history, Archbard there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, this is our territory. People poisoning the it's wrong a box people. Job, isn't it? Yeah. Here we go. We're comfortable there. <laughs> um, so what so that do you was, think yeah. happens, though? I think it's more likely, I'm really sorry to not go for something that's as exciting. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably some form of malaria. Um, Rome in the summer is not a place in the 15th century you want to be. Um, yeah. In fact, even in the 21st century, as there a couple of years ago, it gets to like 40 degrees. So it's hot. It's quite smelly. It's got sort of the Tiber is not pleasant. Um and they suffer from a lot of bouts of plague, of malaria, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, if you read the diaries from the time, a lot of cardinals, a lot of people in cardinal households just die, and they die in sort of quite regular patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the diaries that I sort of refer to quite a lot in my PhD. You've, you've got days, whole weeks, where it's, oh, and X died, X died, X died, and you just watch this trend. So... That one always seems more probable. And the fact that it takes a while for him, unfortunately, to die after becoming poorly. If it was poison, you'd think, unless it's been administered badly, it would be be a couple of days. It's over sort of five, six days. Um, So I think malaria is some form of it, even if it's not as we know it as a modern Mm -hmm. audience, it will be some sort of plague. I I think it's unfair. It's unfair, Kate, at this point. So, I mean, we, we started out with the question about whether he was the best pope since St Peter or the Renaissance Berlusconi. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to rephrase that slightly, <laughs> and 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 just ask you, on balance, if a hundred percent is the best pope you could ever possibly have, and the general all round wonderful human being who has nothing but care for humanity, give Rodrigo a score. Ooh, am I judging him against modern times or of his time? Of his time. Of his time. Okay. Is it? Are we talking a first class pope and upper two one? <laughs> what classifications are we going yeah. for? Um, I'd probably go for sort of give him about a seventy. Oh, just creeping into so the large, first class. Largely, yeah. but largely Large, good then. Do you know, I, I've always, I think, if you look at it, he's an immoral man for immoral times. 
but he's the right person for is the right person to be the right pope for the right time. So in a sentence, um, Rodrigo Borgia couldn't keep it in his pants, but could prevent civil war. He'd give it his best shot for both of those. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I think on that note. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we would love to get your feedback. If you want to say nice things or just point out all our errors, then please do get in touch. We are at HP History Pod on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email hphistorypod at mail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>